Hello, and welcome to another episode of Global.Science. I'm Lev Hordisky. And I'm Fabia Battistuzzi. So the question for today, Fabia, have you ever been to a museum? Yes, probably way too long ago. And the last museum I went to was uh, an arts museum, which was very interesting. But that's not what we're talking about in this uh, science-based podcast. Uh, why not? Well, we could talk about arts, but we are more interested in science. And so have you ever been to a science museum, Lev? Of course I have. Uh, I just can't remember when. I think I got dragged to one with my nephew and it was mostly watching him run around, pulling knobs and uh, spinning things and then trying to figure out where he went and uh, hunting him down. So I think that's my last memory of a science museum. Just admit it, you lost your nephew because you were playing with all the exhibits and that's why you didn't know where your nephew went because the exhibits were too cool. I will make no comment on that. <laughs> well, see, that's the whole point. Museums are really fun because there are all these crazy exhibits that are extremely interactive now. Um, and we just walking through the exhibits, uh, you know, you observe them, you play with them, but you don't necessarily know how they're actually built and who makes those exhibits. So are we gonna get any insight on that actually? I think we are because we have our guest today, Dr. Daniel Hammer. He's an assistant professor of geology at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. And uh, Dr. Hammer is a longstanding friend of ours. We were in grad school together. Um, and uh, he has been involved in uh, some museum exhibits on top of his usual duties as a faculty uh, member with uh, teaching and research. And so Dr. Hammer, do you want to tell us a little bit more about uh, what is your daily life? Hi there, well, it's great to be with you folks today. <laughs> I Wonderful. have not seen you for a while, especially during this pandemic, right? We've not, yep. yeah, yeah, no, th not going podcast, much anywhere. This podcast is mostly an excuse for us to talk to our friends again. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> others will find it interesting. Uh, well, it's great to be here. Um, yes, my name is Daniel Hummer, um, and I'm an assistant professor of geology. Uh, I'm a geochemist and mineralogist. And my research focuses on how minerals form. So when we say how minerals form, there's, you know, there's a, a lot of different ways that minerals form and, the, and, and they form you know, all across space and time. But I'm trying to figure out exactly what conditions cause which minerals to form. And I'm doing that both in a kind of a very local, very small scale sense of doing actual experiments in the lab of crystallizing minerals and finding out how that happens. And also at what point in earth's history did different types of minerals form or go away? Mm -hmm. um, because it turns out, you know, it, in the beginning in geology, we kind of, you know, we take a look at what's there, uh, it, you know, on the earth and in the earth. And we kind of have this presumption that the things that are changing are just up here on the surface. You know, life is changing, weather is changing. You know, we know those things because we see them all the time. But we tend to think of rocks as just being boring static objects under our feet that are just kind of sitting there and not doing much of anything. And it turns out that's very false. Both in short and long time scales, they are 
constantly changing and forming new things. And the more we realize that, the more that we need to figure out, you know, the history of the earth in terms of what the earth is actually composed of and how that's changed over time. So how did you get into mineralogy? Because I know you are a total mineral nerd um, because your car was called the Mineral Mobile and not just because (laughs) it was covered in rust. (laughs) That's that's right. It did did have a copious dose of iron minerals. I do remember that. Um, (laughs) Yes, Um, it was called that because my, uh, my nickname in college was Mineral Boy. As a matter and of fact. Why is that? I know some horror <laughs> stories you've told us about Thanksgiving's past that went catastrophically wrong. Uh, well, I was from a relatively early age, I was really into chemistry. And I'm still into chemistry, and chemistry still, you know, plays a pretty large role in what I do. And then round about the beginning of high school, I was in an extracurricular event called Science Olympiad. And maybe some of the listeners out there will be familiar with Science Olympiad. It's a great program. Um, for middle schoolers and high schoolers. And I got into Science Olympiad and my coach put me in a couple of chemistry events because she knew I loved chemistry. She also put me in an event called Rocks and Minerals. And people who know me nowadays will be horrified to hear this, but I hated Rocks and Minerals. I know that that sounds bizarre, doesn't it? (laughs) That sounds like the origin story of like a (laughs) supervillain. But, uh, you know, as I dug into it, I realized that all the differences between these minerals could be explained through their chemistry. Oh, I see what you did there with the pun. It, um, oh, did I make a pun? I didn't you did, it. yes. You dug into things. Oh, oh good for me. Okay. I'm, I'm always making geology puns. I do that to my students a lot, too. So, yes. So, once I got into it, I realized that... Uh, you know, this was something that could readily be explained by chemistry. And so I got really into the chemistry of minerals. um, And I've been doing that ever since. Excellent. So then, have you ever been to a museum? Well, (laughs) yes, I've been to a real in-depth podcast here with really, uh, I know, I was not prepared for these hard hitting questions, Lev. Uh, but yes, I, I especially love science museums and natural history museums. So have you ever been involved in museums in any other way except for being um, uh, an audience member? Yes. So I recently, just over the past couple of years, um, I was involved in uh, helping uh to create an exhibit at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. Well, that's and exciting. Yes, so this is, I can tell you a little bit about it. Um, this exhibit is part of the brand new, the newly redesigned Allison and Roberto Mignon Hall of Gems and Minerals. Um, it's, it's a brand new renovation, so it's a, it's a new part of the museum. And a portion of it is dedicated to the evolution of minerals. So as I was mentioning just a minute ago, you know, we now know from looking at really big data sets of where minerals occur on earth and what their ages are, we have pieced together that mineralogy has changed a lot over earth's history. Different minerals have come into being at different times in the past. And now that we've reconstructed more of that and we understand it better, 
um, we want to share this with the public. So I was a scientific advisor and I helped uh, advise on some of the content for this new exhibit that shows how minerals change through time. So I'm curious, how did you get involved in this? Because it's not necessarily something that happens to all faculty, right? No, no, this was, this was a really cool opportunity. And um, the way that I got involved was the, uh, uh, the curator of that portion of the museum uh, contacted me, sent me a message and said, you know, I've seen the, the work that you've done and published on mineral evolution. Um, I, my, my very last postdoc was with kind of the father of, of this new line of research. This line of research is only 10 or 12 years old or so. Um, and it was pioneered by a mineralogist at the Carnegie Institution by the name of Bob Hazen. And uh, I was a postdoc of his right before I got my faculty position at SIU. Um, and so the people at the museum had been following this work and saw that I was involved and they reached out to me and asked if I wanted to be involved in helping design the exhibit. That's quite impressive. How long did the whole process take to design, uh, to design from the initial email to, um, to when it finally debuted? Because I remember reading about it. I think, you, I think you may have posted it to Facebook. Uh, I thought, this is really cool. I had no idea you were involved in designing a museum exhibit. So how long did the whole process take? Yeah, I'd say the whole process took a, about a year and a half. Um, you know, you wouldn't think that, that it would take that long to, to design something like that, you know, but of course, for one thing, you know, I and as well as the rest of the design team at AMNH, you know, we're, do, we're working on this in parallel with lots of other things, you know, and especially, of course, faculty or, you know, are teaching and doing other lines of research and going to faculty meetings and so forth. Uh, so, you know, all of that is going on and I'm doing this, you know, just a little bit at a time, but also, you know, it turns out there, and this is one thing that I don't think, you know, a lot of visitors of museums realize because it kind of looks like just a bunch of stuff thrown on the wall, but there is a lot of careful thought and a lot of careful design work that goes into designing these exhibits. You know, a lot of people are thinking very carefully about how to present this in the most understandable way and visualize things in the clearest way that they can. So, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of just brainstorming ideas and writing them all down and discussing them all through over and over again. And then before you finally settle on one way to do it. So did you have to interact a lot with um for example, artists and uh, other individuals that uh, don't necessarily have the scientific experience, but they have the uh, public experience and the artistic experience to kind of fuse together uh, the two sides of a story, which is the scientific side and the um, hum humanity kind of, of, uh, of story. Yes, yeah, I very much did. And that was one of the really fun parts of the process is, you know, I was working with, you know, a couple of other, you know, fellow scientists who, who understood uh, the science behind it, but I was also working with science writers you know, that specialize just in science communication. I was working with a team of artists and designers um, that, were, that were hired from an outside company. 
Um, I was, you know, working with exhibit managers. I was, I was working alongside all of these people uh, to help create the best exhibit that we could. And it was really fun to see the different iterations of it and what was coming out from the art department and kind of see it take shape over time. And that's uh, interesting. So if someone's getting into this for the first time, what would you recommend? Because I'm working with one of my students where working with the Virgin Islands Children's Museum to try to develop some astronomy related materials. The Children's Museum I think is quite different from um, a, um, a regular science museum where it's more display and a story to tell. Whereas I think my impression of a children's museum is that um, it's supposed to be more hands-on and exploratory. Do you have like recommendations for um, if you're starting on this kind of work, what, what struck you as most interesting and most different from what you had been prepared for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in terms of kind of like this direction of thought and this direction of research. Yeah. Yeah, so I think what really drew me to this and what was really different, you know, than you know, what most of the rest of geology researchers are doing is to approach this aspect of the earth, you know, the minerals that make up the earth, approach it less like just, you know, an exercise in lab analysis and, you know, in material science and more like a story. Because so much of what goes on in the earth can actually be told in the form of a story. You know, but certain things, you know, like rocks and minerals, we don't, we don't tend to tell as a story. We tend to just tell it, well, you know, there's this type of rock and this type of rock and this type of rock. Um, but this new field of mineral evolution, I think really makes, you know, my discipline of mineralogy come alive in a sense to the public in a way that it hasn't really before because you can, we, we actually have enough data now to tell this story of how the earth started, what it was made from at the beginning, and then how that changed over time. And tell it you know, more like a story, more along the lines of the way that we tell the story of how life evolved. So what is the story of mineral evolution? Because I remember first hearing it at an astrobiology conference of all places, I think in 2008. And when I heard it, it made so much sense to me that I was surprised that no one had really thought of this before or had framed um, minerals in this kind of framework. So, so what is that story for people who may not be familiar with mineralogy or geology or potentially science at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a really fascinating story. Um, so it turns out that, you know, when the universe got started, of course, it was just super hot gas, you know, flying and expanding everywhere after the Big Bang. So the very beginning of the universe, there were no minerals because minerals are defined as being you know, solid and crystalline. But then over time, stars formed and in around the edges of the stars and the atmospheres of those stars, gases condensed enough. And one of the first elements that condensed was carbon. So it turns out one of the very first minerals in the universe was diamond, of all things. We think of diamond as being the, you know, these beautiful things that, you know, that only happen deep in the earth. They take lots and lots of pressure. But as it turns out, they can happen in really, really, really low pressure as well. And they were one of the first minerals in the universe. Oh, bling, bling, um, bling. Yeah. I, I, I'm good with that. I can go to space and collect some diamonds. I'll yeah. volunteer. <laughs> yeah, so you can picture, you know, little, you know, 
sparkly, literally little diamonds floating around <laughs> the, the edges of stars. And that was some of the first minerals that we had in the universe. Well, then of course, uh, you know, the planets formed the material, you know, swirling around the sun coalesced and it formed the planets. And as soon as we had enough pressure to squeeze all of this solid material together, then we got a whole new set of materials and we got things like olivine and pyroxene and feldspars. And these are the names of, of mineral groups uh, that, that geologists uh, know about, but we didn't really know exactly when they got started. Well, now we have a better handle on it. It was when you know, asteroids and planets were very first forming. Well, and then from there, you can actually step through a series. It tends to happen in jumps. Um, like for example, if, 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 you, if you've ever looked at the evolution of life, you know that there's this theory called punctuated equilibrium where you know, things don't change slowly, slowly over time. They tend to stay static for a while. And then there are periods where they change a whole lot things suddenly jump from one state to another state. Well, the same thing happens in mineral evolution, as it turns out. There are certain key events in Earth's history that, you know, that really you know, filled the Earth with a lot of new minerals that it had not seen before. And examples of some of these important events are the formation of the oceans, uh, the, the start of plate tectonics, and of course, plate tectonics is the whole reason that we have mountains and earthquakes and the, you know, our different continents. So that was a major, major uh, force that shaped the earth. And it also generated new minerals, um, lots of new minerals, actually. Another key event, one of the biggest events, actually, that tripled, um, I kid you not, that according to all the data that we have, tripled the number of minerals on earth was the very first photosynthesis the bacteria in the ocean that performed the first photosynthesis. And by doing that photosynthesis, put the very first oxygen in the atmosphere. I just love it how biologists at the end of the day always come into the picture. <laughs> <laughs> they come in after the geologists. Yeah. I'm no. fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I, I, I guess, yeah, listeners know that Fabia is a biologist. Just right. Yeah. Well, it depends if you that. have heard our, our episodes or not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, there's this really beautiful interplay where the evolution of life and the evolution of minerals, you know, didn't take place separately. They influenced each other and they've been influencing each other ever since there was life. So as it turns out, life uh, is what put oxygen in the atmosphere. And that reacted with all the minerals on Earth's surface, it created a bunch of new minerals. It created thousands actually of new, of new mineral species that the world had never seen before. Um, and then from that point forward, you know, as minerals evolved, then new life forms that were living near them in new chemical environments uh, were able to evolve in new ways. And then they, in turn, changed the environment enough to create the possibility of new mineral species and on and on. And so it kind of reacted that way for uh, in kind of a feedback loop where one was always affecting the other. I really like that story because it kind of ties in the biology of the planet with the geology of the planet in a really uh, intimate and uh, ongoing way. Um, so what's, 
what's the newest mineral? Um, would you count like a circuit board as a type of mineral or does a mineral need to be um, a, a certain, have certain characteristics? Is anything that humans create? I mean, we certainly create new chemical environments that allow new minerals to form, but are there things that we deliberately create that you would consider a mineral or not quite as much? That's a great question. And actually, you know, mineralogists in recent years have been arguing about exactly topics like this. Um, but generally, we require that a mineral be something that forms through natural processes. Um, and we have been allowing more and more things that form, for example, in mine dumps. So there was human action involved, but not purposeful human action. So if you have a mine dump where humans have dug up things and exposed it to the atmosphere, and then reactions happen and you get a new mineral, um, then that can count because it is primarily natural processes acting on natural materials that did that. But we do not allow things that human beings uh, make in the lab on purpose. Okay. It sounds a little bit similar to the distinction that in biology we make with synthetic life. We still call it life, but we make sure that we put the word the synthetic in front of it because it's created in the lab, mm. even though many of the processes involved are similar to what happens actually in the real world, but it's very heavily human directed. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's always interesting to me to see how... Um, how many parallels there are between the different sciences and especially between biology mm -hmm. and, uh, and geology, a lot of the processes really seem to be quite similar. Yeah, they really are. Now, I have to ask Fabia, have you ever created synthetic life? Not that I know of. <laughs> now, I don't guarantee what happens and, behind the scenes in my lab, but uh, I don't think so. <laughs> and if you know, anybody you know has, does it have access to our nuclear launch codes? <laughs> well, I cannot divulge the kind of information, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, what happens in the lab stays in the lab. <laughs> exactly. Kind of like Vegas. <laughs> But yeah, so, you're absolutely you're absolutely right, Fabi. I think there's there's a lot of interesting parallels, um, and that's something that we tried to highlight in this exhibit at AMNH. That you know that that all of these processes amongst living and non-living things are always affecting each other, you know, and has kind of you know made the present day state of the earth really unique. So is the exhibit open and have you gotten feedback from audience members that may have gone through the exhibit? Like what, what does the exhibit actually look like? Are there things for them to do or is it mostly like reading and reading and looking at things? Yeah, so it, there's two parts to the exhibit. There is an exhibit that shows a timeline of mineral evolution um, and it's a spiral timeline. So the Big Bang is at the very center and then it spirals outward and there's a color-coded series of different stages and it shows you what kinds of things. And the fun thing is we actually have examples of, of samples of those minerals. We've got beautiful samples of the minerals that were actually forming at those different stages embedded in the timeline. Um, and there is, uh, there is some, a, a little bit of an explanation of each one of those stages and what was happening in the earth at that time uh, that was generating new minerals. Um, so that's a fun part of the display. And then adjacent to that, we have a video 
uh, we made a video that kind of tells this story of the earth from the mineral perspective um, and, and how it interacted with life uh, that you can you know, kind of watch and, and help visualize even better. And is it open to the public yet? And have people given you feedback on it? Yes. Um, so it opened to the public last June, um, in June of 2021. Um, it opened almost a year behind schedule because of the pandemic. Sadly, we were we were uh, yeah we were planning on a 2020 opening, and it wound up being summer of 2021. Uh, but yes, it, yeah, it is open to the public now. Um, has been for a few months now. Um, and I, I do have a few friends who have been able to visit um, and they really like it. Um, they said it's really exciting to see this perspective and the rest of the Gem and Mineral Hall is, is also beautiful. You know, they've got, you know, they've got geodes and crystals and meteorites and, and all kinds of things on display from all different areas of earth science. You know, some of the samples are bigger than you are. <laughs> so... Yeah, so it's it's a really fantastic display, um, and if anybody you know in New York or visiting New York is interested, I, I very much encourage you to see it. There's a lot of new things in that renovation to see. Sounds like it's time to plan a trip. <laughs> yes, and you know what I? <laughs> so this is embarrassing to admit on your podcast. I have not been to it yet. <laughs> I helped design it, but I have, but I've not been to it yet. Um, but you know, I had a baby, and and it's been a pandemic, and travel has been difficult. So yep. <laughs> that's you, why you, that's you why I haven't put a lot yet. on your plate. <laughs> I do. There's a lot on my plate, but I but I very much hope in the near future that I will be able to uh, to go over there and and visit the great folks that I worked with at the museum um, and see the completed version of the exhibit. I've seen photos of it, but I've not. Uh, but I've not seen the uh, the entire completed exhibit yet. Is this a permanent exhibit or a time limited exhibit? Um, it's a permanent exhibit, thankfully. Um, oh. So it will it will probably be around for about twenty to twenty five years or so, um, and, you know, until they they make a decision to redesign that portion of the museum. And has the exhibit generated its own new minerals? Unfortunately, we don't think so. Well, not yet. But, but you never know. You know, New Yorkers, you know, step on all kinds of weird things on the street out there. And if they, they tramps into the museum and, you know, track it in and the wrong things react with each other, we could very well have new minerals on our hands. You never know. All right. I think that is a great place to leave off. Thanks for joining us, Dan. This was fantastic. Yes, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. So, Fabia, what did you learn about minerals? That I very much need to go to New York right now so that I can see this awesome exhibit. And I was actually thinking of going this summer, so I think I know what, what I'm going to do first. Hopefully this podcast comes out before the summer. Otherwise, it'll sound like you're not going until 2023 or 2024. That is a good point, but you know, wherever I have the time, that's where I want to go and learn some mineral history. So do you think uh, you would end up uh, getting interested in museums? Because I've already started getting into some of the um, museum work down at the, uh, down in the Virgin Islands with some of my projects, because it's an interesting, I think, opportunity to do informal education. Um, what about you? 
You know, honestly, I think I would love to do something like that. It's it would be a very different experience. And I kept thinking as Dan was talking, what kind of skills are necessary to be able to participate in an experience like this um, that we as faculty or in general people that work in academia develop. And one of the things that we do a lot is, uh, you know, outreach. We talk, I mean, I often go to either high schools or elementary schools um, to talk to kids about, you know, evolution, which is the subject that, uh, that I study. And so I think, you know, you can sort of repurpose those skills in a different way. Um, but I think it, it would be really exciting to be able to, to just, you know, visualize, see in real life some concepts that are constantly in our heads only. So what would you design an exhibit about? For me, actually, it would be something kind of similar to what Dan did, but from the life perspective. I work on the evolution of life, and I'm very interested in the very beginnings of, uh, of life, especially, you know, the first couple of billions of years of evolution. Um, and, you know, just help people see how different our planet was um, before, for example, oxygen, like Dan talked about. It was, it just looked different because at some point we didn't have uh, continents on it. And if we had them, they were in different positions. And so, and so the life that was on it was also very, very different. And so I would love to be able to do something like that. Yeah, I think you're just looking for an excuse to, to buy all those giant plushy microbes. Well, yes, uh, and I kind of have the plan of making a giant exhibit of plushy microbes uh, in my lab. So, you know, that's beside the point. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, all right. So anything else you learned that was interesting? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I have learned that I need to see if Dan can uh, uh, give a talk at uh, my university. So at some point, Dan, I'll be, I'll, I will be in touch with you because I think it would be very cool for us to interact a little bit more. Um, but no, I what I really hope is that these kind of conversations can inspire uh, anybody who's listening, students or even anybody that currently has a career but is looking for a new challenge to think outside the box. Uh, whether you are in academia, whether you are in industry, there is so much more that we can do with the knowledge that we acquire over the years um, that in many cases we don't necessarily think about. Before I heard about you know, this experience that Dan had, I didn't even consider the possibility of doing museum exhibits, but I think it's super cool. So it's, it's a very different way of teaching um, that that actually reaches probably more people than than we think. So it's uh, it, it it's good to have this kind of inspiration. Yeah, I agree, and I think uh, museums and uh, even thinking beyond museums, thinking about observatories, national parks, and a lot of these other uh, informal science education institutions, uh, they tend to get overlooked when we're thinking about science education, and they especially tend to get overlooked when we talk about technology to bring some of those things to life. So that's definitely one of the ideas we're pursuing through a lot of the projects we're working on at Science Voices to um, help fill in this technology gap to help um, bring uh, new ideas and in, into this informal education uh, sphere.
yeah, and like you said, you have a student who's uh, starting to build connections with a children's museum. And so it's it's already wonderful to see that there are students who are interested in being those bridges and kind of uh, connecting the academic, the scientific world with the general public world to bring the knowledge um, to kids in the in the case of your student or to adults in the case of other types of museums. So it's uh, I think it's very exciting. How did your student get interested in uh, in that kind of uh, experience? I think mostly we told her to do it. So <laughs> <laughs> we had a uh, uh, we had a longstanding connection between the observatory uh, and the uh, children's museum where they'd historically worked together. So we just decided to rekindle uh, that uh, relationship and see if we could capitalize on it and do something with it, especially because the observatory um, in the Virgin Islands needs to undergo a lot of renovation before it's really tourist ready, um, like things on railings on the roof so that people don't fall off the roof um, and uh, things like that. Um, so we need to find a place where we can do some of the public outreach events uh, that we're thinking about somewhere where we can actually run them. And given that the Children's Museum is right next to the docks, it's really close to where all the cruise ships come in. So it seemed like a good opportunity. So I will have to make her listen to this episode so that she gets some ideas on what she can do. Yeah, and, and it's a wonderful way for institutions to reach into the community and help the community build uh, resilience and build the new opportunities, like you said make sure that there are attractions that are available to tourists in a safe way so they don't fall off roofs. Um, and, uh, and this way, you know, the community benefits from it beyond just learning, but it's actually, you know, economic benefits and, uh, and other aspects. So it's, it's a very nice way of integrating science into many different aspects of life. All right. And I think that's a great place to leave off and we will see you next time. Bye everyone. Thank you for joining us. The music for this episode is Space Chill Out by Penguin Music from pixabay.com. The Mineral Evolution exhibit is currently running at the American Museum of Natural History. For more information, go to amnh.org slash exhibits slash permanent slash gems dash minerals. Global.Science is a production of Science Voices, a U.S. nonprofit organization. You can learn more about us at www.sciencevoices.org. Read about our mission, and you can also contribute to supporting projects like this.